electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. And take a look at the 10-year yield today. I'm going to say it's trying to make a drive towards the 2% mark. 186, the high point so far of the session. Regardless, it's the highest yield we've seen in two years. And it's pushing the Nasdaq back below a key technical level and almost 10% below its November peak. Oh, and then Goldman missed on earnings. Add it all up, energy, just about the only bright spot. We'll have all the latest on these markets. The other bright spot is video games. The stocks are top performers in the S&P after Microsoft's surprise bid for Activision. The latest on the deal on whether it'll face pushback and where it leaves the competition. And with another bad earnings day, we'll look ahead to the companies reporting tomorrow to see whether this selling trend can and will continue. But first, let's get the latest on the sell-off. Dom Chu has our numbers. Dom? All right, so in certain parts of the market, we are heading towards those session lows right now. But you can see there, it's a predominant sea of red behind me. The best performing sector so far, the least decliner, is energy, as you point out here. Meanwhile, the worst is the financial sector, and we'll get more to that in just a moment here. Interest rates playing a big part of that story, but Kelly mentioned that 200-day average price for the NASDAQ composite on a rolling basis. We're still below that right now. Still two and a quarter percent declines for the NASDAQ, 14,556 the last trade there. 90 handles to the downside for the S&P 500. If you take a look within the overall picture for what's happening with rates, it's having an impact on those financials, yes, but also in the home builders as well. Kelly mentioned Interest rates for long-term government debt at two-year highs were also near two-year highs for 30-year fixed-rate mortgages. Those interest rates keep going higher. As a result, Lennar, D.R. Horton, Pulte Group, NVR, some of the worst-performing stocks in the S&P 500 from the whole building side, and the iShares U.S. Home Construction ETF down 4% as well. So keep an eye on those home builders. Very much an interest rate play there. And then the stock of the day so far, what's driving a lot of the headlines Intraday so far, an earnings report from Goldman Sachs, a dip, bit disappointing here on a one-year basis, still up 16%, though, still down 8% right now, 32 points. It translates into roughly 200-some points on that 550-point drop that you just saw there for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. So Goldman Sachs, a big part of that story. And, of course, we've got a lot of, a lot of other big bank earnings coming out over the next couple of days here. So keep an eye on those. Kelly, I'll send things back over to you. Yep, higher headcount, expenses uh, hurting them as well. Just like J.P. Morgan, we'll have more a little bit later on, Dom. Thank you. But we're seeing the impact of the Fed's recent hawkishness as rates rise and tech stocks sell off. In fact, the consensus is now for four rate hikes this year. And investor Bill Ackman this weekend said the Fed should consider a surprise half-point rate hike. Steve Leisman is here with more. How much more hawkish can we get at this point, Steve? Well, you left something out, Kelly, and I'll tell you what it was in just a second, but you are right. Stronger inflation and hawkish comments from Fed officials prompting a reset in expectations for tighter interest rate policy this year. The new forecast, Kelly had it right, four hikes, but it's four hikes plus QT, quantitative tightening, and there's upside risk to that as well. A March rate hike, now it's near certainty as priced by futures markets. A second hike in June carries an 85% probability. That's according to Refinitiv. Uh, and the third hike is baked in for July or September with strong odds of a fourth hike now 
in December. But that's just what's priced into rates. Fed observers also expect QT or quantitative tightening with growing agreement. The Fed will also reduce its balance sheet this year, maybe as soon as the summer. That's maybe the equivalent of another rate hike or two. And some think the Fed on the rate side could or should do more. Goldman Sachs writing that four hikes plus QT may not be enough. It said in the commentary, if the FOMC wants to be a more active contributor to bringing down inflation, then it will need to do enough to tighten financial conditions materially. Some of that's happening today. To be sure, there are those who see the recent round of economic weakness and suggest that these hawkish forecasts are maybe getting ahead of themselves. But the strong trend so far has been for forecasters to raise the outlook for Fed tightening with much depending, Kelly, on how much help the Fed gets from the market itself. Sure. And those tightening conditions. I mean, we spoke with Dave Zervos at Jeffries last week who said, you know, normally we've seen even a 10 or 15 percent pullback engender a reaction from the Fed. All of a sudden, maybe we're down to three hikes or two or they, they change their tone. He said he doesn't think that's going to happen this time around, that it would take something on the range of 25 to 30 percent for them to change their tune. That I think, you know, you could do a lot worse than get advice from David Zervos. I'll tell you that right now. And I think he's, he's probably right. And I'll tell you why, Kelly. There's two things going on. The first is the Fed has to get back to where it was more or less before the pandemic. And that just goes without saying. But layer on top of that, that the Fed has a 7% inflation problem. So there's two reasons for the Fed to get where it needs to go. And that may be that it, will, it needs to sacrifice more of the market to get where it needs to go to get inflation under control. And ultimately, over time, that's better for the market than letting inflation run out of control. That's a very interesting way of putting it, sacrificing the market to get inflation under control. Uh, very interesting tug of war playing out here. Steve, as always, thank you. Our Steve Leesman reporting. My next guest actually has her doubts about the Fed hiking rates four times this year. She thinks it'll be fewer and says the best approach right now to approach to investing is to pick so-called Goldilocks stocks. Joining me now is Nancy Pryle, the co-CEO and senior portfolio manager at Essex Investment Management. Nancy, welcome, and, and tell me how you expect this all to play out. So we are um, cautiously optimistic that the current rate expectations for four or possibly more rate hikes, plus quantitative tightening, and some chatter about a potentially surprise hike in January, 50 basis point hike in the first one in March, are based on backwards-looking data. It's based on the um, believe that the 7% inflation rate is where we are and that it could possibly even go higher from there. Now, some parts of what we've seen in inflationary are going to be sticky, particularly wage increases, rent increases, et cetera. But we think that what the market may be missing and what we think the Fed will be focused on are signs coming in the future of a decline in some of the raw material and other cost pressures that we've been seeing, particularly so with the point to the easing of the supply chain imbalances, as well as some softening of home price increases. In other words, you think that the inflationary pressures will resolve themselves. So it won't be that the market has to sell off deeply. It won't be that the Fed has to throw in the towel on its plans. You just think that we won't have this, the inflation pressures per se. I mean, but look at energy even today, right? Isn't that going to be a big source right. of upward pressure? So we think that this will be a process over time. And we do think that over time, we will see that the rate of inflation is coming down. That doesn't mean we won't have inflation higher than we had before the pandemic. We fully expect that inflation will be two and a half to three percent. And we fully expect two plus rate increases or two rate increases plus quantitative tightening. But we think that the 
Fed will remain data dependent. And as the data comes in and shows a softening of the rate of increase of inflation, that that will give them the room to Mm. let these first rate increases play out into the market. And that the market, which is rightly um, addressing the fact that we will have rates higher and that the Fed needs to get back to where they were pre the pandemic, that they won't have to go quite as sharply as the market is currently forecasting. And I'd remind our viewers that we saw a similar rate in the increase in the 10-year last year, which did not play out into the rate increases that the market expected. Absolutely. And we've all, we remember from the past 10 years, practically every time they've tried to tighten, they had to reverse course. Let's talk about some of the stocks, Nancy, that you like here. You call them Goldilocks stocks. They're not names we talk about every day. Zuora, AlphaTech, Digi. Tell me more about these. Yeah, so we think that in this market environment where we are seeing a recalibration of valuations due to the rise in interest rates, and we're seeing um, the market change from a growth at any price, total available market focused area, that it makes sense to focus on um, what Robert Frost would call the road less traveled. So we want to find stocks that have excellent growth prospects, but that are selling at reasonable valuations. One of the areas that we're still very bullish on is digital transformation, because that is um, not only happening faster than expected, but it's a way for companies to combat some of the cost pressures of wage increases by substituting capital for labor. Both Zuora in the software space and Digi in the communications equipment space are ways to benefit from that trend without having to overpay for that growth. Digi in particular, they sell communications equipment that helps with um, the Internet of Things so that you can keep your networks running. Mm. Think of applications like smart cities. Think of applications like enabling um, remote work. Think of applications like some of the sustainability and green technology. They are the backbone that helps power that communication between all of the things out there and the other things out there. And they will benefit from an easing of the semiconductor supply chain. Well, which is having its own impact on the uh, on the semi stocks today. Let me just also, Nancy, get you to to, as we depart, address this question for those who are still wondering about the Nasdaq. And is this an entry opportunity? And, you know, what about some of the big tech names that have been stalwarts and are in correction territory? What would what would you tell people to do there? So we think that we may be approaching a point where you can start to nibble at Um, some of these big tech stocks and some of those areas that have been very popular areas in the past. That's one of the reasons we like Zawara in software is we do think that sentiment will shift there. Having said that, we think it's still a little too early. Um, The expectations are still high. Valuations are still high. We need these stocks to stabilize, to adjust to a lower multiple. And so we would pick our spots carefully and remind investors that trying to catch a falling knife can be very dangerous. Better to wait for some basing, some stabilization, and let's see how the earnings come out as we get the earnings reports in January and February. All right. Wait it out. A few more weeks still. See what happens. Nancy, always great to have you. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Nice Nancy Pryle with Essex Investment Management. Coming up today, a shock and awe deal. Microsoft scooping up beleaguered Activision for nearly $70 billion in cash. Who could be hurt the most as a result? Plus, oil prices hitting a seven-year high. That's not helping the upward pressure on inflation and rates. The latest on where the industry sees prices going from here. And as we head to break, Disney, Visa, and Merck are pretty much the only gainers in the Dow right now. Goldman, JP Morgan, and Cisco all dragging it lower. We're back in a moment. 
people today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. A blockbuster, game-changing deal. Microsoft announcing plans to buy Activision Blizzard in an all-cash deal worth nearly $70 billion. Microsoft's gaming chief saying it'll keep the company at the forefront of the metaverse. When we look at the competitive set that's out there, we look at the importance to us at Microsoft Gaming of people playing on mobile. We look at the coming metaverse, the opportunities that we need with great IP. Uh, we really saw this as an amazing opportunity because gaming's continued growth over the years. Microsoft's big on gaming. We're continuing to invest here, and we see it as a real strong catalyst for us in the consumer categories. All right. For more on the impact of this deal, let's welcome in Eric Handler, Managing Director and Senior Analyst at MKM Partners, and Russ Freshtick, who is co-founder of the gaming site Polygon. It's great to have you guys both here. Eric, let me point out the obvious, which is even with a 20%, uh, 25% rally, Activision's trading at 82 and the deal price is 95 Right. Well, I think that reflects, one, you do have obviously some risk arm that you're dealing with, but I also think there are some concerns with this deal as a result of investigations and lawsuits going on regarding its internal issues. But at the end of the day, I think the deal will go through. Do you, Eric, anticipate regulatory pushback? Because we just heard from Lena Khan talking about their increased aggressive posture against deals almost without the usual justification, almost just because they're deals from big companies. And people are saying even if this were to go through, it could take two years to complete. Uh, it could take some, some time to complete, but at the end of the day, um, given how broad the gaming market is, and uh, it's not like Microsoft is the dominant player by any stretch of the imagination uh, in this market, I, I don't see regulatory issues being a problem. Russ, maybe you could speak to that a little bit. What is the positioning, okay, of all of these companies in gaming, which has become so important? And Microsoft has to be one of the top five, if not top two or three. Yeah, they're absolutely up there. And and for Microsoft, there's no question where their focus is. Predominantly, they are having so much success in the subscription space with their Game Pass service. They just announced that they hit 25 million subscribers with that. So by having all these acquisitions, they're essentially booing that service and creating this Netflix of gaming that they've been dreaming about for the last decade or so. And it's finally hitting uh, in a big, big way. I agree that there's some question as to whether it go through. But Microsoft also spends a lot of money on lawyers to make sure that it will. Uh, on a scale of one to ten, how genius is this move by Microsoft, Russ? You know, I uh, I would say it's probably a seven. I think it <laughs> makes sense. Their biggest hurdle that they need to get get across 
is obviously Activision is in a tough spot right now. And, not, you know, organizationally, it's been pretty dreadful. They've got the sexual harassment lawsuit, the gender discrimination lawsuit, lawsuit. So they've got to work overtime to make sure that Activision's reputation is fixed. And a lot of that has to do with continuing to remove some of the higher ups at Activision who have kind of fostered this environment. Yeah, fair enough, although it does seem like an opportune time to come in and, and scoop up some assets on the cheap. We've also seen a lot of uh, video game consolidation lately, Eric. We've seen Take-Two wanting to buy Zynga and then really weird share reaction there where people really weren't sure what to make of that move. What would you say is most likely to continue? Is this going to set off a lot more M&A across the space? Well, M&A has been going uh, you know, on in the space uh, quite a bit over the last couple of years. We're seeing a lot of consolidation. Um, it's getting larger scale now with you know the Take Two acquisition that you just mentioned today's Microsoft acquisition. Uh, you know this is the gaming industry. It's about a two hundred billion dollar year industry. It's very fragmented. Platforms are expanding, especially now as we talk about the metaverse. And there's going to be several different metaverse platforms. And it's important for these companies to have owned IP that they can position on their own platforms to draw interest among consumers. Yeah, and I know you're saying that, you know, watch Sony, maybe they could look around at EA or Take-Two itself as the number of independently owned billion-dollar franchises with cross-platform potential become more scarce. Russ, what would you say as well? I mean, does Microsoft, are they, are they a friend or foe of the video game industry? I mean, there's a, certainly a battle for control right now, wouldn't you say? I mean, if this acquisition goes through, they are a large, large chunk of the video game industry. So friend or foe is a question. You know, it's a, it's a question of whether we want, you know, four or five major huge companies essentially owning the marketplace, which it does in a lot of different sectors and certainly gaming. This would push that even further in that direction. I think right now Microsoft offers a very good value for what they have in the space, whether it's through Game Pass or their games specifically. What happens after this merger goes through, you know, as more larger companies gain control, they uh, might change their strategy a little bit. It might not be as generous as it is now. Yeah. So kind of a question. Well, we know Netflix has a big ambitions in this space. We'll watch the rest of big tech, um, you know, not to mention the traditional media names as video games just absolutely on the scene in a very big way with this move today. Russ Freshtig, Eric Handler, thanks both. We appreciate it. Speaking of tech and M&A, don't miss a special edition of Capital Exchange tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. Eastern. In her first on-camera interview since becoming chair of the Federal Trade Commission, Lena Khan will join Andrew Ross Sorkin and Kara Swisher of the New York Times Sway podcast for an exclusive in-depth conversation on big tech, big business, and the FTC's approach to the current wave of deals. Go to cnbc.com slash capital exchange at 10 a.m. Eastern tomorrow to catch that. And of course, we'll bring you all the headlines and highlights right here on CNBC. Still coming up, the case for Netflix. The stock down 15% already this year, and earnings are due out Thursday. Why one analyst says you should buy ahead of that report. Plus the story, the action, and the trade on three big reports tomorrow from Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, and P&G. All the stocks in the red today. Will they continue to suffer the same fate as Goldman and JPM? We're back in a moment. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? 
AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Dow's down more than 600 points. Session low so far, down about 650, slightly off that level right now. One and two-thirds percent decline, almost 2% for the S&P, almost 2.5% for the NASDAQ, which is now at 14,500 and change. The 200-day moving average was up around 14,700. Here are some of the movers this hour. Big cap tech certainly in focus with Meta leading the declines there, followed by Amazon and Alphabet. Meta down 3.6%. You almost wonder if it's partly related to Microsoft's big move into gaming. You call it the metaverse. The rest of the names down about 2 to 3%. And let's check in on those semi-names. They were strong performers all the way in to year end, but seeing big clients today have been a very tough 2022. The worst performer applied materials down 7%, the SMH ETF. Look at that. It's below 300. Remember, it peaked out around 318. 295 is where we're trading today with another nearly 4% decline. Now, on the flip side, the cybersecurity stocks are holding up a little bit better today. You're even seeing some green back here for Zscaler, Palo Alto up a couple of percentage points, CrowdStrike, Fortinet still under some pressure. And, uh, and also e-commerce names, Take a look there. We've seen some uh, difficult trading for this batch of names, and that continues today, which just tells you what kind of environment stocks don't like in 2022. They don't want higher rates. They don't want hawkishness from the Fed. Uh, all of those trades are playing out in more declines here. For Poshmark, down 11%, Shopify down 6%, and so on and so forth. Deer is a bright spot, though. The stock is tracking for its best month since last February, and it's less than 4% from its all-time high. So some of these more traditional cyclical names holding up a little bit better right now, dear up half a percent. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. The White House using the strongest language yet to describe the chance of armed conflict in Ukraine. This as Russia sends more troops to the region for military exercises with Belarus. Secretary of State Blinken will meet with Ukraine's president tomorrow and Russia's top diplomat on Friday. This is an extremely dangerous situation. We're now at a stage where Russia could at any point launch an attack in Ukraine. Uh, and what Secretary Blinken is going to go do uh, is highlight very clearly there is a diplomatic path forward. The Senate, meantime, has begun debate on the Democrats' election reform bill. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says that a vote on the bill will be held sometime this week. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says that Americans deserve to see where their senators stand on the right to vote. Drug maker Gilead Sciences is suing some of its distributors for selling fake versions of its HIV drug. Gilead says that it's identified more than 85,000 counterfeit bottles worth more than $250 million. And on the news tonight, a look at crime in America and vigils being held for victims killed in New York subway and at a bus stop in Los Angeles. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. Kelly? All right, Rahel, thank you. Coming up, Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, and Procter & Gamble all out with results tomorrow. Are investors nervous? We'll tackle each stock and the key things you need to know on today's earnings exchange right after this. 
Welcome back. I'm Julia Borston with a news alert on Verizon. The telco announcing that it is agreeing to temporary limit deployment of 5G near certain airports. This follows a similar announcement from AT&T. Verizon saying that tomorrow it will launch its 5G ultra wideband network, which will enable more than 90 million Americans to experience the speed of 5G. But they say that they have voluntarily decided to limit the 5G network around airports. The FAA and our nation's airlines have not been able to fully resolve navigating 5G around airports despite it being safe and fully operational in more than 40 other countries. They say thanks to the best team in the industry for delivering this technology. So definitely, as you heard with AT&T, similarly, Verizon pushing back at the FAA at the inability to be able to launch nationwide tomorrow. So they are carving out those areas around airports while they they do move forward with the deployment of 5G in all the other areas. So guys, you see Verizon shares trading down just a fraction of 1%. Back over to you. All right. We're still waiting for more detail on exactly how that will work, Julia. We appreciate it. We'll have more next hour. Julia Borson reporting. Let's get to earnings exchange now, shall we, where we give you the action, the story, and the trade on three stocks ahead of their results tomorrow. And stock number one is Bank of America. The bank stocks were off to a hot start in 2022 until we got to earnings. Uh, When that rolled around, Goldman and J.P. Morgan both getting hurt post-results. In fact, J.P.M. down now uh, for the second straight day. Goldman down eight, almost nine percent. And there's Bank of America down three and a half percent. Now, they are set to report in the morning and they've beaten estimates in 10 straight quarters. Will their hot streak continue? Here to break down the story is our own Wilfred Frost, joined by CNBC contributor and Inside Edge Capital founder Todd Gordon, who has our trades today. Welcome to both of you, Wilf. I guess Jeffries was a warning after all. It's just been bad news after badder. Yeah, well, Jeffrey's missed on fixed income trading. I think the, the interesting thing for Bank of America tomorrow is whether they can do well on the two key issues that brought JP Morgan's stock down on Friday. And that was JP's guidance on both net interest income and on costs. On the cost front, we know costs always key for Bank of America. They've been bad during the pandemic. The last two quarters showed signs of improvement and nothing over the last month or six weeks from Brian Moynihan and Bank of America have suggested they're going to guide Uh, for bigger costs in the year ahead. Maybe they will all of a sudden, but that's not currently uh, expected. And on net interest income, they are the most interest rate sensitive. Maybe they won't overwhelm on that guidance. But again, I think it would be a surprise if they underwhelm. So there's a a reasonable chance that Bank of America will come out in the the Wells Fargo camp of this quarter's earnings, i.e. positive rather than the J.P. Morgan side, negative. Wilf, before I ask Todd about B of A specifically, any other thoughts on Goldman and J.P.M.? I mean, these are really bad stock results. Yes, they've had a big run-up, but why were an analyst and investors caught so flat-footed here? Yeah, I mean, Goldman sums it up. Really bad stock performance after a record performance for revenues and earnings and returns over the full year. So there's one aspect to which... They've run up too much in the short term, particularly at the start of this year, coming into earnings as the stock market is rotated. The the key thing that they both share, slightly disappointing on trading and disappointing on uh, on guidance for costs. And and we'll see if Morgan Stanley and Bank of America have that disappointment in terms of guidance for costs uh, when they both report tomorrow. Yeah, Goldman shares are now up only 16% over the past year, over the past 52 weeks. Interesting. All right, Todd, let's do Bank of America. What would you do with the stock? Um, I don't own it, Kelly. And uh, you know, I think if we could take a step back real quick on the financials, you got to keep in mind, this is one of the strongest sectors right now leading the market along with energy and any weakness that we're seeing 
in the financials is I think more macro related and obviously interest rate related. The 10 year pushing up through 1.8%, uh, that was resistance, it's broken, it's a problem. But guys, we still have a steep yield curve. Uh, we've seen sort of a flattening in the middle part of the curve. Even if we get four Fed rate hikes, we're a long ways away from a flat or an inverted yield curve. So as I said, banks uh, are strong and specifically bank industry with the XLF are doing well, uh, even in front of insurance and securities and asset managers and specialty finance. So as I said, I don't hold Bank of America. I'm holding more regional banks like Fifth, uh, Third, Key, uh, and so on. It's Bank of America is trading 14.7 times forward earnings. I got a current PE of 14 compared to the PE of the XLF, which is like nine and a half. So it's expensive. Yeah. It only yields 1.75%. It's well below the peers. I'd like to see them increase their, their dividend here a little bit. Um, it's just quickly on the consumer business. They're showing really good increase in customer deposits. Checking account values are up, but their loan growth is lagging down about 12% year over year. So uh, with inflation raging, Bank of America is going to have to kick up those yields they pay on checking accounts. That's going to hurt their margins. I'm All not right. overly constructive. So you're sticking with more of the regionals than the big guys here. Todd, uh, hold your thought. We're going to turn yeah. now to Morgan Stanley, also reporting tomorrow and actually down 4% year to date now. Similar to Goldman, which is falling today on their earnings miss, Morgan is expected to show a decline in trading in their business uh, tomorrow morning. Now, their business model is a little different, though, especially after adding E-Treat and E-Advance. Will high salary costs bite them, too, Wilf? What's the story here? So trading is a, is a key point, as you mentioned, uh, and in particular, equity trading has disappointed a little bit for Goldman and J.P. Morgan. Morgan Stanley's number one in equity trading. It's a more important area for them. So will they show that same sort of 10 percent or so year over year decline? We'll see that in, in terms of those comp costs, uh, people's pay and bonuses. Again, they're not as tilted to investment banking and trading as they used to be with about 50 percent coming from wealth management. That doesn't typically have as variable annual comp costs. And then the other point on costs that we mentioned, investing in tech and things like that, James Gorman has always said part of the rationale for buying E-Trade was buying in the tech. So that there's room for them not to disappoint uh, to the same extent as, as, uh, as Goldman somehow managed to, despite a record yeah. year this morning. And to your point uh, on the share price performance, Morgan Stanley was at 106 briefly on the 12th of January. It's down 12.5% in quite a short space of time. Wow. All right. So, Wilf, thank you. Todd, what would you do with Morgan Stanley? Yeah, I agree with Wilf. A lot of the points he just said. Uh, we hold Morgan in our in our uh, growth portfolio. We have a 2.75% weighting. We love the stock. We love the 2.9% yield. Uh, heading into the earnings here, uh, you look, I think they beat the last six quarters. And as Wilf said, comparing to Goldman, um, we hold Goldman also. It's a 1.85% target. So even prior to those earnings reports, Goldman was being sold off relative to not over the S&P, but financials. Uh, they don't benefit from higher rates as other banks do. Uh, Goldman report. I don't think it's for, it's fair to extrapolate that report onto, onto Morgan. They cited wage inflation, but also slowed down equity trading. I mean, Q4, guys, was very sideways, except for a run-up in October. It was a very sloppy equity range. Uh, trading revenues and fixed income are expected to slow by about 3%. I think Wolf kind of said it. Like I think the street's going to give Morgan a pass here. Hmm. Goldman's trading eight and a half times forward earnings. Morgan's 12 times forward earnings. This is really a, a better uh, place to be. The technicals have yeah. been sideways since August. I think they're pushing through that lower range, Kelly. I think maybe if we get to 90, you can nibble if you don't have it uh, already. But right. I continue to hold the stock. 93.50 is where we are now. And very diverging fortunes lately for Goldman and Morgan.
Um, Todd, thank you. Wilford, thank you again. We'll let you go and we'll see you on closing bell. Finally, today, Procter & Gamble also reporting tomorrow, and they're expected to put up some strong results. The stock has mirrored that this quarter. It's up 10 percent in the past three months, having spent most of the pandemic trailing the broader market. Is it time for some more catch up here? Dom Chu is here with our story. Hi, Dom. All right. So, Kelly, let's start off with the expectations. First of all, Procter & Gamble is forecast to post earnings of about $1.65 per share on revenues of roughly $20.3 to $24.4 billion dollars. A big focus for many traders, many investors and analysts will be on what the costs look like and are forecasted to look like in the coming months. Now, last quarter, Procter & Gamble did manage to counter some of the cost pressures by raising prices on certain key items, but it did also manage those expectations by warning of bigger inflation risks ahead. This is going to be a very interesting kind of litmus test on whether or not the brand cachet that, that a company like Procter & Gamble brings. I mean, we're talking Pampers diapers, Bounty paper towels, Gillette men's grooming products. Some of the biggest consumer brands out there are owned by Procter & Gamble. Do those brands have enough marketing power to get consumers to go out and buy them in a time when costs are higher. That's going to be a big key. And by the way, if you're looking for a kind of stock reaction for the tilt towards this, in five of the last eight quarters in which Procter & Gamble has reported earnings, the stock has been higher in five of them. So it's something to kind of keep an eye on wow. as the numbers come out tomorrow morning. All right. And Todd, at a time when a lot of people are bullish on consumer staples, are you a fan of Procter & Gamble? You know, Kelly, I've kind of missed the boat here. We actually have no exposure in our growth or value portfolio on consumer staples, so we've kind of missed it. Uh, they've really rotated in quite well here. Uh, industries within staples are doing well are soft drinks, uh, tobacco, tire, food retailers, personal products, which is where PG lives, uh, trying to make a recovery, acting well. Uh, I think Unilever's big move down today is kind of weighing on in the industry group. Um, you know, I might be looking to add to the portfolio. Adds uh, yields about 2.18%, I think. They've got 5% uh, year over year, or five year growth of 3.1%, uh, trading 26 times next year's earnings. I think it's expensive. Uh, they're expected to make about $1.65, as, uh, as, as Dom said. What's interesting is their margins are dropping. Uh, Mid-21, they're about 24%, went down to 23%. And last quarter, the CFO on the conference call said they were looking for about a $2.1 billion after-tax commodity headwind uh, with freight costs and obviously impost input costs going up. They guided up to 2.3, and this was before the latest Omicron uh, yeah. wave, so I'm wondering if that inflation is going to bite into this p and I'd like to buy it lower. I'll look to buy it lower, around 145 but I don't own it. All right, $11 below where we are right now. Um, we'll see if tomorrow we get some a better set of reactions. Todd, thank you so much. Todd Gordon with our trades today. Dom, thank you for the My story pleasure. on P&G as well, our Dominic Chu. And coming up, crude prices are hitting their highest level in seven years. WTI was above $85 a barrel earlier. Is this a new breakout or another false dawn? We'll explore. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Oil prices hitting a seven-year high due to ongoing concerns about supply and geopolitical tensions. West Texas crude breaking above $85 a barrel today. Brent was over 88 before pulling back. But even the CEO of Exxon didn't sound that bullish on oil prices earlier. He addressed it as part of their plans for being net zero on operations by 2050. Listen. Frankly, we're anticipating lower prices as we go forward. So making sure that our plans are robust to that wide range and then uh, run the, the business uh, efficiently 
cost competitively, reliably. Make sure you're doing that and taking care of your emissions and, and your other environmental metrics. That's kind of the base plan that we're executing today. Here to react is IHS Market Vice Chairman Dan Jurgen. Dan, it is great as always to have you here. And I'm impressed that he would outright say they have to expect lower prices as well. But how do you expect this to play out? I think in the short term, we're in a tight oil market and it's probably going to get tighter because of basically lack of investment and demand has simply been stronger than, uh, uh, than many people had anticipated. And on top of that, as you said earlier, there's a whole geopolitical overlay here. And I, here in Washington, I can tell you the sense of nervousness about Ukraine is very, very high. But I think on the other side and demand, there's a fact that people are kind of discounting Omicron's effect on China, thinking that it won't collide with its no uh, zero tolerance policy. And so, but, you know, longer term, of course, it's a cyclical matter, but there is this question about preemptive underinvestment in oil that I think is weighing on the market and is part of the underlying concern. Quick question, how much of a Ukraine premium do you think is built into the oil price right now? Well, uh, that's always a, 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 you know, a guesstimate. I think there are a, kind of a couple of dollars. But I'll tell you, here in Washington, people are working on war games, figuring out what to do. Obviously, the discussions with the Europeans about where do you replace supplies if they're disrupted? And, uh, you know, and Europe gets 35 to 40 percent of its gas from Russia. So uh, it's certainly in there in the price. And every day it seems that the, the tensions, uh, the concerns, the timeliness uh, 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 when something's going to happen draws closer. Absolutely. And I wonder, Dan, you know, we've, the stocks are not doing as well as they were in 2014. They've been up big over the past year, but relatively speaking, the market caps were larger in 2014 for these companies than they are today. Is that because people think by the end of the decade, there's going to be a lot smaller market for oil than there is today? Well, certainly that message is out there. Our own view is that, in fact, oil demand will continue to increase during uh, this uh, during this decade, which is what part of this problem of investor uh, investment is. And of course, there are you know, increasing numbers of investors looking at ESG, not wanting to support the sector or thinking this is only temporary and that it's going to revert uh, sooner rather than later. But clearly, there's more interest among investors in these companies now uh, than there was uh, you know, six months ago. Yeah, and if you want the whole backstory, I can recommend not only that book behind you, but the whole the whole library of Dan Jurgen for some perspective <laughs> on these challenges that we face right now. We'll leave it there, Dan. Thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank Dan Jurgen with IHS Market. Still ahead, Netflix in the red again after giving up all of its gains from 2021. We'll hear from one analyst who still sees 50% upside from here. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. The market firming up a little bit as we move throughout the afternoon here. At session lows, just over an hour ago, we were down about 650 points. We're now down around 500 on the Dow, and for the Nasdaq, only 2.3%. Still been a tough run. Netflix is set to report earnings on Thursday, less than a week after announcing an immediate price hike for new users. And while that announcement boosted shares on Friday, Netflix has mostly been under pressure lately. The stock is down 15% this year and has given up all of its 2021 gains. But my next maintains a buy rating and a $750, $750 price target, if I have that right, on the back of huge content rollout this year and a tangible path towards gaming revenue. Joining me now is Nat Schindler. He's Bank of America's senior analyst. Uh, Nat, it's great to have you. Am I right about $750? Are you sticking with that? 
Uh, yes, I am. I mean, I don't change my Netflix price target all that frequently because it's based on a long-term calculation and peak penetration um, discounted back. So it really doesn't make that much difference what the market is saying today versus you know three to four weeks ago when the stock was quite a bit higher. I do believe in the story at this point, and I believe that they have that that subscribers follow content, and the content rollout has been very big in Q4, followed in, and it will be even bigger in Q1 and Q2, and that should drive more people to keep watching Netflix. I I, I don't have a reason to believe at this point that we aren't back to that fundamental cadence that they had pre-pandemic of about high 20 million net subscriber ads per year. Hmm. Uh, the pandemic did cause a fluctuation in that. Through a whole bunch of new subscribers into 2020, that made it harder in 2021, but that doesn't, that should end as we go forward from here. Fair enough. So it's been, it's been kind of harder to look at what the fundamental story is because the pandemic distorted it. I was just gonna ask though about competition. You know, HBO Max gets all the buzz right now. And what does that mean for a company like Netflix, especially as it just raised prices pretty considerably? I, I, so this might seem strange, but I don't really believe in competition here. <laughs> um, and the reason being is people don't watch. They don't watch channels anymore. You don't watch NBC versus CBS. You watch shows. Netflix, if you want to watch Stranger Things, HBO uh, Max is not going to help you. So it doesn't really matter what is on Disney, what is on HBO Max. And even if it did, if I compare the amount of shows and the amount of content that is being created by Netflix versus the others, it, it, it's not even close. They're vastly farther ahead. And what you get for the same price is you know, far more at Netflix. Now, HBO has some great shows and that will continue and people will subscribe to HBO, but will they stay with HBO and be a constant subscriber like they have been with Netflix? And well, that's about putting out content regularly. Well, and I'm looking at the content spend. I think Disney's in like the $30 billion range this year. And to your point, everyone's driven by new shows. Apple picked up a bunch of people just because of Ted Lasso and then the morning show. So, you know, is that content arms race one that Netflix can keep winning? It's interesting you bring up Disney. Disney is actually the only one they are not competing for content with because Disney makes Disney franchises. Um, and if you want to make a Star Wars show, you don't go and bid it out to everybody. You have to go to Disney um, or Marvel or something else. That is the way uh, Disney is in its own world is respect. Yes, uh, Apple coming into the market and buying, and you know, their spend to date is still quite small relative to Netflix, 20 billion a year, uh, and even relative to Amazon's. But they've had this competition for a very long time. There will continue to be competition for good content. Uh, Netflix spends the most, creates the most, and has been the most successful at doing it. A final question about video games, which Netflix had already said it was looking to get more into. Now we have this huge acquisition by Microsoft of Activision Blizzard. What does that do to Netflix's video game ambitions and how important are they in general to your view on the stock? I think of the video game story for Netflix is um, poorly fleshed out upside. And by that, I mean, I don't think there is very much anticipation for video games at Netflix. 
so far, everything they have announced is basically creating titles uh, that are mostly mobile-only titles that play off their content. So just expand upon Stranger Things with a mobile game that relates or something to that effect. That is not the same as making $60 console games uh, at Activision. Um, and it certainly isn't as big a moneymaker. So I, I think there's a very long way to go until Netflix has really developed a gaming strategy that really would move the needle on their revenue base. Well, it's So if they do come with something, it would be upside. Fair enough. <laughs> Poorly fleshed out upside. Nat, it's been great to have you on. We really appreciate it. Again, Nat Schindler, above consensus for how revenue and EPS will do for Netflix this year. And we'll see if this earnings season kicks that off. Thank you for your time today. Great. Thank you. Still coming up, the competition for your crypto dollars. It's heating up. Payment companies like MasterCard now partnering up to help you buy your own NFT. We have those details next. It's about to get easier for you to buy an NFT or a non-fungible token because it is not easy right now. Kate Rooney is here with the details and a surprising partner, Kate. That's right. Hey, Kelly. Yeah, MasterCard and Coinbase partnering today. This deal is the latest big partnership between a payment giant and a crypto company. As part of the deal announced this morning, Coinbase customers will be able to use MasterCard credit and debit cards to buy NFTs. So that could be anything from digital art to music. It's part of Coinbase's NFT marketplace that has not launched yet, but it was unveiled late last year. And Coinbase executives say they're looking to reduce some of the friction that comes with the buying process when it comes to NFTs. MasterCard, meanwhile, says it sees big potential for NFTs beyond just art and collectibles. So a growth area for MasterCard there. Both MasterCard and Visa, two of the biggest payment networks, have been on somewhat of a deal spree lately when it comes to these crypto partnerships. So MasterCard teaming up with Bact as well to enable banks and merchants to offer crypto services. It also partnered with Gemini and BitPay as well. And Visa, meanwhile, has more than 60 partnerships, including one with Coinbase as well, on a debit card. Amex has been notably quieter in this space. The irony, though, Kelly, some are pointing out here, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin were first designed to really get around the intermediaries. But some of the very banks and payment companies have embraced blockchain and crypto as those become a bit more mainstream. I talked to Mizuho's Dan Dolov this morning. He says this is an example of MasterCard really thinking outside the box in its approach to crypto. Over the long term, though, he did say blockchain technologies could be a threat to some of these network ecosystems and a challenge to that trusted third party concept. Kelly. It is beyond ironic and kudos to the incumbents for <laughs> muscling their way back in there. And if they can make it better for everybody, maybe it is a win-win. Kate, thank you for now. Kate Rooney <laughs> reporting. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. Thanks for your time today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older like a family vacation or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.